You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. Our first reading this morning is from the prophecy of Isaiah chapter 9, the verses 1 through 7. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the future he will honor Galilee of the Gentiles by way of the sea along the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as men rejoice when dividing the plunder. For in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us the son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Our second reading this morning is from the prophecies of Micah, chapter 5. I'll read together the verses 2 through 5a. But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. Therefore Israel will be abandoned until the time when she who is in labor gives birth, and the rest of his brothers return to join the Israelites. He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they will live securely. For then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth, and he will be their peace. Our third reading this morning is from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 2. We'll read the verses 1 through 20. And the verses 8 through 20 will be our text. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to his town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. 
Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly, a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to men, on whom his favor rests. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what they had been told about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. The text this morning is Luke chapter 2, the verses 8 through 20, which we've read together. Dear congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, and especially the young boys and girls, because you're much better at this than those of us who are older, I would like you to imagine something with me for a little bit. Imagine that you lived in a country, in a a kingdom, where there was a great and loving king, a great king whom everybody loved, but a king who had been away from his country and away from his subjects for a long time. One day, the king writes a letter to you and asks you to prepare for his coming. To get things ready for when he's going to come. He tells you that you have all the authority and time and money that you might need for this task. What would you do? How would you do it? How would you arrange for the coming of the king? Well, I would imagine that you would make sure that everyone knew about it. You would call the newspapers. You would call the TV stations. Make sure they had the reporters ready. You'd spread the word on the internet. Maybe you'd start a blog or Facebook group. Maybe you'd write a chain letter to make sure that everyone knew about the coming of this king. You would probably hold parades all over the kingdom in preparation Whatever you did, you would want to get the word out. And you'd probably pick the spot of the king's coming very carefully. In a place, the most populous place in the whole kingdom. On a time when there would be lots of people gathered like like Times Square in New York on New Year's Eve. Where there would just be a lot of people who could all witness the coming of the king. You'd probably invite the kings and queens from neighboring countries. And maybe you'd even have a choir. Maybe a children's choir. That would be nice, wouldn't it? Performing at the moment that he arrives. Well, it's nice to imagine, isn't it? But probably no matter how we planned it, it would be very different than the way that our Lord 
chose to send his son into the world. See, we would do it probably with pomp and circumstance so that everyone would know with bright lights and lots of fanfare. But God did it at night in the fields outside Bethlehem. And he hardly told anyone, just a few shepherds and some wise men from far away. And yet that is how God did it. That's how he sent his son into the world. His son who was born as a king and who would become the greatest king that this world has ever known. God did it not according to our way, but according to his way. And he had very good reason to do it that way. He did it because his son was a king, the greatest king of all, but he was a different kind of king. And his kingdom is different than any kingdom that we know of. Greater in every way than all the kingdoms and all the power of this world, but very different. And so I proclaim the word of God to you on this Christmas morning under this theme. The arrival of the king. The arrival of the king. That's what Luke talks about in our text. Luke 2. The arrival of the king. This arrival is announced paradoxically. We'll explain what that word means a little later. Praised heavenly and spread joyfully. So the arrival of the king is announced paradoxically. Praised heavenly and spread joyfully. So first, announced paradoxically. We've already spoken about how we might have carried out this announcement of the birth of the king. But as we said, that is not how it was done. But yet we should notice that the way that Luke records the coming of our Lord Jesus and indeed the way that the Holy Spirit orchestrates it all shows that Luke is indeed taking aim at the highest power in the world at that time. He's taking direct aim at the king, the emperor, Caesar Augustus, and for that matter, any ruler who would call himself God, who would set himself up as the highest king. And we see this in several ways in and around our text First of all, you can notice in chapter 2, verse 1, in those days it mentions Caesar Augustus. And of course, it's talking about the census that Caesar Augustus decreed, but this mention of his name becomes curious when we realize some of the other parts about this announcement. We also notice that the references that the people and that the angels make to this baby born on Christmas Day are highly regal. All sorts of overtones of kingship. In chapter 1, if you turn back there, you can see chapter 1, verse 32. The angel is speaking to Mary. And he says, You will be with child and give birth to a son. You are, given to na- you are to give him the name Jesus. He will be great will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. Direct reference to his kingship. And then in verse 33, his kingdom will never end. Or in chapter 1, verse 
35, the Holy One born to you will be called the Son of God. The Son of God, that was the name that the Roman emperors liked to apply to themselves. That was their, their highest name, the Son of a God. Well, that was the name that the angel gave to Jesus. Or we could look at Mary's song in chapter 1, verse 52. She says, she begins, my soul glorifies the Lord. And she goes on in verse 52, he has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. Well, what ruler is sitting on the throne at that time, if not Caesar Augustus? Or we could even look at Zechariah's song in chapter 1, verse 74. Zechariah says that this child to be born will rescue us from the hand of our enemies. Who's that but the Romans? Who is that but Caesar Augustus, that they would be redeemed? Or even in our text, we can look, chapter 2, verse 10. The angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. That word there that's used for good news is the same word that was used when someone was crowned emperor. The heralds would go out into all the kingdom and would proclaim the good news. That there was a new king. Well, all these references to the kingship that Luke includes in his gospel would have been enough to get him into trouble. Because clearly as he announces the birth of this child in Bethlehem, he is saying one thing very clearly. He, and only he, is the king. And we can even look at more things. In our text again, chapter 2, verse 11 Today, in the town of Bethlehem, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ, the Lord. For the Roman kings, it was important to have lots of names piled on. Think about Caesar Augustus. And he had all sorts of other names added on to that as well. Well, here the angel comes, speaking about the child, and he piles on these names, names that the Caesars themselves like to like to call themselves. Savior and Lord were their favorites. But here he says, no, the Savior and Lord is this child born in Bethlehem. And in that other title, Christ, of course, this word might not have had much currency in the Roman world, but the Jews certainly knew what this was all about. The Messiah was the one who was going to deliver them from the hands of their enemies. The Messiah was the one who was going to redeem God's people. He was the anointed heir of David's throne, who would sit on that throne and reign forever. Just like Isaiah prophesied about. Just like Micah prophesied about. And others. And perhaps the biggest opposition to the current reigning king in that time is the announcement the announcement of the angels when they say peace on earth. Perhaps Caesar Augustus's greatest achievement was the so-called Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, the peace that had spread throughout the whole Roman Empire as they had brought law and order to bear. But the angel has no regard for that peace but he announces that with the birth of this child, there will be a real peace, a peace that is deeper, that's stronger, 
that's greater in character. And so it's clear from what Luke writes in his gospel that the birth of the child born in Bethlehem is being compared to and even surpasses the kingship of Caesar Augustus, the greatest king that they had ever known. Luke, and indeed the Holy Spirit, is making the point clear to us that this Jesus is king, not the Roman emperor or anyone else for that matter. But yet, if we look at this passage and we consider this a little more, and we realize that his birth is really not like that of a king at all. It's not at all how we would imagine the birth of a king. But God did did it like this for good reason. Because although the Lord Jesus is a king, greater than any, any earthly king, he is a king unlike any king before him or after. That's the paradox. A paradox is something that seems contradictory or seems to be opposed to common sense and yet may be true. The greatest king ever born, born without any notice, born in a feeding trough, that's a paradox. Seemingly contradictory, but yet it's true. And so his coming wasn't announced in major cities. It wasn't done at just the right time of day in just the right place. Well, it was. It was announced to shepherds out in the field, watching over their flocks at night. And now to someone who would have lived in this first century world of Luke, this would have been another part of that paradox. A king announced by shepherds? That was scandalous. Shepherds were not honored people in that day. They were not respected at all. Shepherds were known to be thieves and were known to be trustworthy. They were best left outside the city at night, away from everyone else, tending their flocks. That was a good job for them. They were poor outcasts. But this is who the Lord decided to send the message to first. And, as we've been saying, it was for good reason. It was significant. Why? Because those were the people for whom this baby was born. Those were the people who were going to benefit from the coming of this king into the world. Those were the people who belonged in his kingdom. He was a savior, Jesus Christ, born for sinners, for outcasts, for those who had no place in this world. Because he himself was born without a place in this world. He was born in a manger in a feeding trough. That's another part of this paradox. It's contradictory. A glorious angel appears to the shepherds, strikes fears in their heart, tells them that this is a message of great joy for all people. Wow, what's that going to be? Well, there's a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. It's not exactly as earth-shattering as it was made out to be. Talk about upside down. Talk about contradictory. But yet, what's striking is that the shepherds don't scoff. You can imagine if this was announced to the Pharisees, to the scribes, to, to King Herod, they would have laughed. That's no king. The shepherds don't scoff. They believe. They don't question. 
They trust what's told them. They know what this king is going to be all about. And so it's clear that the angels are announcing the arrival of a king, the greatest king ever, but a king like none other. Most kings would have arrived with pomp and circumstance, but this one came to a young virgin, Mary, far from home, not in the inn, in a feeding trough. He came differently because he was a different type of king. The Caesars would rule through force and through threat. But this Christ would rule through weakness and through convicting the heart. The other kings came to bring glory to themselves. But this king came to bring glory to his Father in heaven. The kings of this world would come and go. But Christ came to establish an eternal kingdom and to sit on its throne forever. And the nature of his rule is entirely different as well. With the Caesars, you can imagine that their rules would would make changes for the lives of people a little bit. But really, in a lot of ways, it wouldn't change their lives. It wouldn't change who they were. They might experience more wealth or more poverty, more freedom or more controls, but it wouldn't change who they are day to day. It wouldn't change their hearts. But when Jesus Christ came into this world as king, he brought a kingdom that changes everything for us. It changes how we think. It changes how we act. It changes our life from day to day. He changes us from the inside out. Because that baby that was born in Bethlehem was Jesus Christ, the Lord. He rules over us. Our Savior He redeems us from our sins. The Messiah, our King. He came to bring a new kingdom, a new era, a new start really for mankind. He came to bring hope, eternal life. He came to bring peace. And so it's no wonder that the angels praised God like they did. Consider that now. The heavenly praise that comes at the arrival of the king. Considering just who it was that was born in Bethlehem on that first Christmas, it's no wonder that the reaction in heaven was like it was. This was the greatest, most decisive step forward in the history of God's redemption for his people. This was the most clear step of God's salvation since that promise so long ago in Genesis 3 that he would send a savior. Here is God moving decisively to bring redemption, salvation, hope, eternal life, and peace. And so it was that heaven exploded with praise for God while the earth was quiet. Only a few shepherding outcasts knew and some wise men from the east perhaps were curious about it. Heaven itself erupted into praise for God and His mighty work. You see, earth didn't understand what was happening. And so long after that event, now 2,000 years later, so many still don't understand what happened. But the hosts of angels who joined with that angel who gave the announcement, they knew. They knew what was going on here. 
And that's why they sang that most comprehensive song of praise that you could imagine in verse 14. Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace to men on whom His favor rests. So look at that song for a moment. We should notice as we consider it that it's really made up of three comparisons. If you look at it closely, God and man, glory and peace, and in the highest, in the heavens, and earth. Three comparisons. We'll look at each one in turn. First, God and man. Jesus Christ coming into this world is really about just that. God and man. If we were to break it down into its simplest terms, that's what it would be. God became man to bring peace between man and God. To restore that relationship that was severed in the fall into sin. That relationship which had not been totally healed throughout years of history and God working with His people. That sad reality had been the most prominent reality for the whole world indeed, and even for God's people throughout their very existence. They were constantly breaking that relationship, falling away from God, but now one had come who would restore that relationship. And instead of bringing hostility between God and man, that hostility that had existed, he would bring peace. Peace. That's what Micah had prophesied so many years ago. There would come one who would be their shepherd. He would rule with the strength of the Lord. He would give security to His people. He would give them peace. And that's what the angels sing about concerning this young baby. His very birth on this earth and in the flesh means peace for God's people. Peace that is profound and far-reaching, as Isaiah spoke about in chapter 9. Peace that is deep, like Micah spoke about. Peace that is far-reaching indeed and deep, but not universal. Indeed, it is not for everyone. And the angels, remember, who are singing this song, would have known all too well the war that was going on between God and Satan, the enemy of God. And they know that, they knew that many had stood, will stand, and will never be removed from God's judgment. Of course, the angels understand God's sovereignty, and therefore they know that this peace that this child brings is really not for everyone, but it's for those on whom God's favor rests. Indeed, inseparable from the fact that Christ came according to God's plan of redemption is that this peace is limited for those on whom His favor rests for reasons that are only within God's wisdom, God's good pleasure. But indeed, this peace for God's people is real peace. It's glorious peace. And it's closely tied to the glory of God. Indeed, as the angels sing glory to God, it's because He has acted powerfully and sovereignly to bring this peace to earth. 
But even here you see the paradox and the irony of God's work. This child is announced with the radiance of God's glory shining around the shepherds, with the angels singing of God's glory, and yet it's a child lying in a feeding trough. He is Christ, the Lord, God incarnate, and yet he's been born without the glory of God. He emptied himself, not grasping equality with God as Paul mentions in Philippians 2. So why does this word becoming flesh, why does God emptying himself of his glory mean more glory for God in the heavens? Why is that? Well, it can only be because of what this child has come to do. He was born with a purpose. And that purpose was to make peace between God and man. He who is God became man in order to suffer rejection from men and from God and to bear his judgment so that he could make peace for us. Between us and our Heavenly Father so that we could be received into favor with him. So that we could be those on whom his favor rests. In his emptying and being born in human flesh, Christ Jesus, the Savior, brought glory to God in the highest and peace on earth to men. And so you see how it is with God's kingdom. The angels understand what's going on, and that's why they sing and they praise God in the highest, in the highest heavens. But on earth, no one is taking notice. Not yet, anyways. God's plan is clear from heaven, brothers and sisters, But on earth, it remains a difficult thing to understand. That's the way it is with God's work. And that's the way it is with God's kingdom. It's not always clear to us. It's certainly not clear to our world that lives in darkness. But in that last comparison of the song, we see that the king is going to change that as well. For God receives glory in the heaven, and on earth his people receive peace. In Christ, God has acted to bring heaven and earth together. He's bringing heaven and earth together in His Son, God and man. Indeed, since they were separated at the fall into sin, heaven and earth had remained distant from each other. We on earth have a hard time comprehending what's going on in heaven. But in Jesus Christ, the two become one. In building his kingdom on earth, God is revealing his glory to men on earth. And he's showing himself to be most worthy of glory and honor and praise. In Christ, we have the glory of God come down. And we continue to see his glory because we live in the peace that he's accomplished for us. That brings us then to the final point as this news of this king is spread joyfully. And this is what the shepherds really realize. This incredible gospel of God becoming men, man for the salvation of men is what the shepherds realize as they go to see the sign of that good news, the Savior wrapped in swaddling cloths. 
The realization of what God has done in sending His Son down to them, in sending that Messiah, fills them with joy. And they spread the news of this child so that everyone is amazed. It's beautiful, isn't it? It's the first heralding of the King on earth. The good news for all men is announced from heaven to earth. And then once the shepherds hear this news, they go out as the heralds on earth to bear witness to that child in Bethlehem. And they began to spread that news themselves. And so it is that the message of this king begins to spread by word of mouth. It's not the way we might have done it. It doesn't always seem like it's the most effective way of doing it, but it's the way that the king has chosen to spread his gospel, the news of his coming to the world, to tell the world of the peace that he brings through the words of those for whom this is good news. And that's the way God continues to spread this message. Remember, it's a kingdom unlike any other. And so it's spread in a way unlike any other. It's like Paul says, it's foolishness. God doesn't use the most likely heralds to spread his news. He uses simple people like us. He uses those for whom this really is good news. God doesn't use the most likely of methods. He uses the words of his people. He uses the preaching of the gospel. He uses the witness of his church, of weak people, to spread his news in this world. News of his glory in heaven and peace on earth. We should consider, though, how it is that the shepherds reacted. They didn't see that baby sitting in a manger and feel as if now they had just been enlisted to do the uncomfortable task of telling others this good news. You can just imagine that reaction. Oh great, now we know about this. We're going to have to have all sorts of awkward conversations with our neighbors. We're going to have to feel guilty about not sharing our faith with others. We're not going to be able to take part in the the chat at lunchtime with the other shepherds anymore. It's going to change everything. Well, yeah, it's going to change everything, but that's not their reaction. They go home glorifying and praising God. They're so filled with joy that they just have to speak this good news. A child has been born in Bethlehem. It means salvation for the whole world. They were so changed by seeing the glory of God that they praised Him and glorified Him. And so this Christmas, we need to see and realize what God did so long ago in sending His Son. We need to pick up God's Word and dig around in it and meditate on the arrival of that King and what it means. And in doing so, in seeing that King, and considering what He came to do, we'll be filled with joy. How could we not? And we'll speak about Him with praise and honor. And we'll give Him thanks. We'll be filled with joy and this message will spread. And perhaps some of you came here this morning not really sure about what's going on here on Christmas. Not really sure about this Jesus who was born in Bethlehem. You're not sure why we're so caught up in this Christmas celebration since you can't really see the effects of it in this world. Seems like it happened a long time ago. Why is it so important? Well, consider that this king that we're talking about 
is a different kind of king. And his kingdom is a different kind of kingdom. He works from the inside out. He works on hearts and lives. He builds his kingdom not through impressive displays of glory and power, but humbly through service, through his church. His glory is displayed indeed in weakness, and his kingship is displayed through service. He's not dressed in the pomp and the power of this world, but you can be sure of one thing, that he is the king. And so we need to look with the eyes of faith on this child born in Bethlehem and see that he is the Savior, the Christ, the Lord. He is the reason of great joy for all people. His coming means peace for all who would recognize him. See who he is. Believe in what he's done. And give him the praise worthy of a king. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.